Welcome to Celebrate Poe, Episode 97, A COVID Christmas. And if you're wondering why this episode is called A COVID Christmas, what could the two possibly have to do with each other in any kind of a positive way, well, stay to the end of the episode, and I think you'll, you'll be pleasantly surprised. Now, my name is George Bartley, and I'm really glad that you're taking time from your busy schedule to listen to this special episode of Celebrate Poe. It's been so cold outside that I've really gotten into doing podcasts. This is the fourth podcast episode that I've done today. I didn't really plan it that way, but I knew I wanted to do a podcast and include the poem, A COVID Christmas. Very powerful stuff. So stay to the end of the show for that poem. It is an incredible piece of writing. I just saw the poem on Reddit four hours ago and wanted to share it with you. Well, first, I'd like to read a story by an Indiana native, George Aide, and that's A-D-E, called A Set of Poe. Now, spoiler alert, it uses a similar format as uh, last episode's The Gift of the Magi. But I think it is interesting that it was published two years before The Gift of the Magi by O. Henry. So it is highly unlikely that George Aid was trying to copy O. Henry. Besides, it's the only Christmas story that I could find that has anything to do with Poe. Uh, Then I would like to read a version of The Night Before Christmas centered around COVID, one of the most hopeful pieces that I've read in a long time. First, a set of Poe. Waterby remarked to his wife, I'm still tempted by that set of Poe. The set of Poe I saw in the window today marked down to $15. Yes, said Mrs. Waterby with a sudden gasp of emotion. Yes, I believe I, I, I have to get it. I wouldn't if I were you, Alfred, she said. You have so many books now. Uh, I know that I have, dear, uh, but um, I haven't uh, any set of Poe, and that's what I've been wanting for a long time. Uh, This edition that I was telling you about is beautifully gotten up. Oh, oh, I wouldn't buy it, Alfred, she repeated, and there was a note of pleading earnestness in her voice. It is so much money to be spending for a few books. Well, I know, but, uh, and then he paused for the lack of words to express his mortified surprise. Mr. Waterby had tried to be an indulgent husband. He took a selfish pleasure in giving and found it more blessed than receiving. Every salary day he turned over to Mrs. Waterby a fixed sum for household expenses. He added to this an allowance for her spending money. He set aside a small amount for his personal expenses and deposited the remainder in the bank. He flattered himself that he approximated the model husband. Mr. Waterby had no costly habits and no prevailing appetite for anything expensive. Like every other man, he had one or two hobbies, and one of his particular hobbies was Edgar Allan Poe. He believed that Poe, of all American writers, was the one unmistakable genius. 
The word genius has uh, has been bandied around the country until it has come to be applied to a long-haired man out of work or a stout lady who writes poetry. In the case of Poe, Mr. Waterby maintained that genius meant one who was not governed by the common mental processes, but who spoke from inspiration, his mind involuntarily taking superhuman flight into the realm of pure imagination, or something of that sort. At any rate, Mr. Waterby liked Poe, and he wanted a set of Poe. He allowed himself not more than one luxury a year, and he determined that this year the luxury should be a set of Poe. Therefore, imagine the hurt to his feelings when his wife objected to his spending $15 for that which he coveted above anything else in the world. As he went to work that day, he reflected on Mrs. Waterby's conduct. Did she not have her allowance of spending money? Did he ever find fault with her extravagance? Was he an unreasonable husband in asking that he be allowed to spend this small sum for that which would give him many hours of pleasure and which would belong to Mrs. Waterby as much as to him? He told himself that many a husband would have bought the books without consulting his wife. But he, Waterby, had deferred to his wife in all matters touching family finances, and he said to himself with a tincture of bitterness in his thoughts that probably he had put himself into the attitude of a mere dependent. For had she not forbidden him to buy a few books for himself? Well, no, she had not forbidden him, but it amounted to the same thing. She had declared that she was firmly opposed to the purchase of Poe. Mr. Waterby wondered if it were possible that he was just beginning to know his wife. Was she a selfish woman at heart? Was she complacent and good-natured only when she was having her own way? Wouldn't she prove to be an entirely different sort of woman if he should do as many husbands do? Spend his income on clubs and cigars and private amusements? and give her the pickings of small change. Nothing in Mr. Waterby's experience as a married man had so wrenched his sensibilities and disturbed his faith as Mrs. Waterby's objection to the purchase of a set of Poe. There was but one way to account for it. She wanted all the money for herself, or else she wanted him to put it in the bank so that she could come into it after he but this was too monstrous. However, Mrs. Waterby's conduct helped to give strength to Mr. Waterby's meanest suspicions. Two or three days after the first conversation, she asked, You didn't buy that set of Poe, did you, Alfred? No, I, I, I didn't buy it. He answered as coldly and with as much hauteur as possible. He hoped to hear her say, Well, why why don't you go and get it? I'm sure that you want it, and I'd like to see you buy something for yourself once in a while. That would have shown the spirit of a loving and unselfish wife. But she merely said, That's right. Don't buy it. 
and he was utterly unhappy, for he realized that he had married a woman who did not love him and who simply desired to use him as a pack horse for all household burdens. As soon as Mr. Waterby had learned the horrible truth about his wife, he began to recall little episodes dating back years, and now he pieced them together to convince himself that he was a deeply wronged person. Small at the time and almost unnoticed, they were now accumulating to prove that Mrs. Waterby had no real anxiety for her husband's happiness. Also, Mr. Waterby began to observe her closely, and he believed that he found new evidences of her unworthiness. For one thing, when he was in gloom over his discovery and harassed by doubts of what the future might reveal to him, she was content and even-tempered. The holiday season approached, and Mr. Waterby had made a decision. He decided that if she would not permit him to spend a little money on himself, he would not buy the customary present for her. Selfishness is a game at which two can play, he said. Furthermore, he determined that uh, if she asked him for any extra money for Christmas, he would say, I'm sorry, my dear, but I can't spare any. I'm so hard up that I can't even afford to buy a few books that I've been wanting a long time. Uh, Don't you remember that you told me I couldn't afford to buy that set of Poe? Could anything be more biting as to sarcasm or more crushing as to logic? He rehearsed this speech and had it all ready for as he pictured to himself her humiliation and surprise at discovering that he had some spirit after all and a considerable say-so whenever money was involved. Unfortunately for his plan, she did not ask for any extra spending money, and so he had to rely on the other mode of punishment. He would withhold the expected Christmas present. In order that she might fully understand his purpose, he would give presents to both of the children. It was a harsh measure, he admitted, but perhaps it would teach her to have some consideration for the wishes of others. Now, it must be said that Mr. Waterby was not wholly proud of his revenge when he arose on Christmas morning. He felt that he had accomplished his purpose, and he told himself that his motives had been good and pure, but still he was not satisfied with himself. He went to the dining room, and there on the table in front of his plate was a long paper box containing ten books each marked Poe. It was the edition he had coveted. Uh, What's this? he asked, winking slowly, for his mind could not grasp in one moment the fact of his awful shame. I I think you you ought to know, Alfred, said Mrs. Waterby, flushed and giggling like a schoolgirl. Oh, it was you. My goodness, you've had me so frightened. That day, when when you spoke of buying them, and and I told you not to, I was sure that you had suspected something. I I bought them a week before that. Yes, 
Yes, said Mr. Waterby, feeling the salt water in his eyes. At that moment, he had the soul of a wretch being whipped at the stake. I was determined not to ask you for any money to pay for your own presence, Mrs. Waterby continued. Do you know I had to save for you and the children out of my regular allowance? Why, last week I nearly starved you, and you never noticed it, as I was so afraid you would. No, uh, I didn't notice it, said Mr. Waterby brokenly, for he was confused and giddy. This self-sacrificing angel, and he had bought no Christmas present for her. It was a fearful situation, and he lied his way out of it. How did you like your present, he asked. Why, I haven't seen it yet, she responded, looking across at him in surprise. You haven't? Why, I told them to send it up yesterday. The children were shouting and laughing over their gifts in the next room, and he felt it his duty to lie for their sake. Well, don't tell me what it is, interrupted Mrs. Waterby. Wait till it comes. I'll go after it. He did go after it, although he had to drag a jeweler away from his home on Christmas Day and have him open his great safe. The ring which he selected was beyond his means. It is true, but when a man has to buy back his self-respect, the price is never too high. Now, when I first read A COVID Christmas or first heard of it, I thought, oh, it was going to be a humdrum parody. But by the end, I felt like a little child excited at Christmas and full of hope. This uh, parody or poem or whatever you want to call it was posted less than four hours ago on Reddit and is by Dr. Tom McDonald of Ottawa, Canada. Now, first, I better explain two terms that are not central to the poem or the story, but might be new to people outside of Canada. And I want you to be a little bit familiar with them uh, when he refers to them. First is CERB, or C-E-R-B. This is the financial support that the government provides to employed and self-employed Canadians who were directly affected by COVID somewhat similar to the uh, stimulus bill. And then the second term is PRC test. Uh, and this is when he refers to the PRC, he's talking about an Ottawa test that is required for travelers coming across the land border. Okay, now we've got that out of the way. I'm going to start on a COVID Christmas. Twas the night before Christmas, but COVID was here. So we all had to stay extra cautious this year. Our masks were all hung by the chimney with care in case Santa forgot his and needed a spare. With COVID, we couldn't leave cookies or cake, so we left Santa hand sanitizer to take. The children were sleeping, the brave little tots. The ones over five had just had their first shots. And Mom in her kerchief and me in my cap had just settled in for a long winter's nap. But we tossed and we turned all night in our beds as visions of variants danced in our heads. Gamma and Delta and now Omicron. These 
COVID mutations that go on and on. I thought to myself, if this doesn't get better, I'll soon be familiar with every Greek letter. Then just as I started to drift off and doze, a clatter of noise from the front lawn arose. I leapt from my bed and ran straight down the stair. I opened the door and an old gent stood there. His N95 made him look pretty weird, but I knew who he was by his red suit and beard. I kept six feet away, but blurted out quick, "'What are you doing here, Jolly St. Nick?' Then I said, "'Where's your presence, your reindeer and sleigh? "'Don't you know that tomorrow will be Christmas Day?' And Santa stood there looking sad in the snow, and he started to tell me a long tale of woe. He said he'd been stuck at the North Pole alone. All his white-collar elves had been working from home.' And most of the others said, Santa, don't hire us. We can live off the Serb now, thanks to the virus. Those left in the toy shop had little to do. With supply chain disruptions, they could make nothing new. As for the reindeer, they'd all gone away. None of them left to pull on his sleigh. He said Dasher and Dancer were in quarantine. Prancer and Vixen refused the vaccine. Comet and Cupid were in ICU. So were Donner and Blitzen. They may not pull through. And Rudolph's career can't be resurrected. With his shiny red nose, they all think he's infected. Even with his old sleigh, Santa couldn't go far. Every border to cross needs a new PCR. Santa sighed as he told me how nice it would be if children could once again sit on his knee. He couldn't care less if they're naughty or nice, but they'd have to show proof that they'd had their shot twice. But then the old twinkle returned to his eyes, and he said, and he said that he'd brought me a Christmas surprise. When I unwrapped the box and opened it wide, starlight and rainbows streamed out from inside. Some letters whirled round and flew up to the sky, and they spelled out a word that was forty feet high. There first was an H, then an O, then a P. Then I saw it spelled hope when it added the E. Christmas magic, said Santa, as he smiled through his beard. Then suddenly all of the reindeer appeared. He jumped into his sleigh, and he waved me goodbye. Then he soared out the rooftops and into the sky. I heard him exclaim as he drove out of sight, Get your vaccines, my friend. Merry Christmas. Good night. Then I went back to bed, and a sweet Christmas dream of a world when we'd finished with COVID-19. Here's hoping you a Merry Christmas. 